I'm especially excited that you're here today because uh, John and Ellie, uh, John's an old friend of mine. Ellie's a relatively new friend of mine, and I'm uh, really excited to have them here helping me this morning uh, to teach uh, the, the what I think is a very uh, important addition to the understanding that life is difficult and challenging and for everybody just because of how it is, which is the fundamental of Dharma, but emphasizing the idea that helping in this world, that or orienting one's attention outside of oneself, particularly to how can I help is the universal antidote to personal despair that uh, that I, I, I frequently find myself teaching these days that uh, although life is continually challenging, local challenges, personal challenges, communal challenges, worldwide challenges, universal challenges, here's this poor beleaguered planet in the middle of a world getting too hot. We all share those challenges and that the... Um, the built-in possibility of an antidote to the despair and dismay and anxiety about the challenge is doing something to help. That um, when we sit now in a minute, instead of saying, close your eyes, I'm going to say, open your eyes. And uh, that uh, meaning that in the biggest way, open your eyes so that one's mode of being in the world is with eyes open, seeing what's really happening, the question is, what can I do? Who can I help? And when we look around and see on a personal, communal, worldwide level, there's something that can be done to mitigate suffering, mitigate pain and difficulty, and I could do it. I'll do it. And that, that particular, it, it's not a shortcut, well, Used to be, we used to be like years ago, I would say things like if we were to gain insight through our meditative practice, had insight, we become wise. If we became wise, we would see how much difficulty it is just to be a person in the world, let alone be amongst other people. And then we would be moved to compassion and to say, you know, you can start from here, open your eyes. And out of compassion, look at everybody and say, hey, they're just like me. One way or another, we are all responding to challenges in our lives. And how can I help to respond to this particular challenge or that? Or can I? Which ones can I? And in doing, to discover that that connection not only makes a difference to the people we connect with, but makes a difference to ourselves. What I wrote in my notebook as the as the preliminary thing that I was going to say, I wrote it two ways. The overall theme is the most important thing I've learned in my years of cultivating mindfulness is that the principal beneficiary of an act of kindness is the heart mind of the source of that kindness. We personally are the principal beneficiary of our acts of kindness. And I rewrote it a minute ago as addressing pain and difficulty in other people's lives, motivated by compassion, 
mitigates suffering, their suffering, my suffering, by noticing that life is hard. So just for a few minutes so that we're entirely here, we usually spend five minutes at the beginning of a class together to say, notice your breath, notice your body. Notice all of those. Notice your breath and notice your body. Notice you're alive. But notice it with your eyes open. And then notice all the people on the screen. And I'll be quiet. And I'd like you to take some time. We have two screens worth of people now. So I'm happy to say we're just about at 50 people. More will join. So take time to look at these people. And each time you see a person, if there's somebody here that you know, then for sure you're thinking, may you feel at ease, may you feel content, may you feel peaceful, may you feel safe. Whatever phrase comes to you to wish somebody well. If you don't know a person, don't even know where they are, you'll be thinking wherever you are. May this moment be comfortable for you. That's really the prayer that we're making in our whole life. Well, I think we, we I think we are in our whole life without knowing. People sometimes say, oh, I don't pray. But we all go out in the morning, or if we go out, we think, man, have a good day. I hope this day is good. I hope things don't happen bad. Hope that for different people right now, for the next several minutes. We'll do it. Eyes open.
Now I'm looking at the whole page at one time. They have two whole pages of people. And I am I'm saying the overall what I what I learned from uh, being a little bit with Mahagosananda at the end of his life is that when he wasn't particularly involved in a conversation, he would be saying to himself, almost under his breath, but people around him could hear it, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. It's kind of a cat overall phrase. Look at the whole page and think, may everybody be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And when I say that, I really suddenly feel it in my body. I'm in the middle of everybody. I'm in the middle of all beings. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. This would be a time when if I like or was in the habit of using a bell to ring, I'd do ding. But I don't do ding anymore because I like to think that I'll go around and that you'll go around and we'll all go around for the rest of the day, generally thinking. May all of you, who's ever I know about it this minute, be peaceful and happy, come to the end of suffering, including me. So I want to tell you that we have a special morning. Uh, John Nam Kung. Is going to tell us about his experience over the last several years in responding to the difficulties of others. And he'll talk for a while. I've invited both John and Ellie to really teach the substantial part of this morning because both of them have stories to tell that are tremendously important to hear. And then they'll have a time in between. John will talk and then we'll sit quietly for a little bit. We'll have pondering meditation where we'll ponder what he said. And then Ellie will talk and we'll ponder again. And then I'll invite you all to talk and ask questions and John and Ellie, to John and Ellie or with John and Ellie, we'll all talk with each other. It's my great privilege to welcome John Namkung. Thank you, Sylvia. It's really my pleasure to be here. Um, in 2016, I uh, went to northern, or uh, went to Greece, to the island of Lesbos, and then northern Greece to help the Syrian refugees as they were leaving their war and going to Western Europe. And three years later, in 2019, I um, went to northern Greece again, this time to volunteer and work in a refugee camp for uh, Yazidi refugees who were uh, victims of genocide by ISIS. Uh, 
I didn't expect to go back and work with refugees again until February of 24th of this year. Most of you know that it was the day that uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And I saw the same images that you saw of the millions of mostly Ukrainian women and children fleeing the war and going to other parts of Europe. And by March 13th, which was my 74th birthday, I was determined to go to Poland to do my small part to help these Ukrainian families. And by the end of March, March 29th, I ended up in Poland working for a small organization called Type of Wood Charities. And our job was to transport uh, Ukrainian families at the border of Poland and Ukraine to other parts of Poland. And my wife, uh, Diane, initially asked me, um, why spend thousands of dollars to go to Poland when you can stay at home and donate that amount of money to a charitable organization on the ground in Poland and other parts of Europe? Uh, in other words, she's saying, why are you compelled to go to Poland? I ended up spending about $3,500 of my own money uh, to, to go to Poland for two weeks. And her question is a good one. And by the end of the, my talk, I think you'll understand the response. So my main job was to um, go to the border and uh, take transport Ukrainian families in my rented car to Krakow in Poland, which was a distance of about 160 miles one way. And it took about three hours. And my hotel was near the border. So that meant I had to drive back to the border to go back to my hotel. So that meant I drove six hours a day, about 320 to 350 miles a day. And during the two weeks I was there, I estimate I drove about 5,000 miles. And uh, I know the rental company was not too, uh, rental car company was not too happy with me when I returned the car with that many miles on the car. So um, I would go to the reception center or the refugee reception center at the border. And when the Ukrainian women and children um, came to the refugee reception center, I would go up to the reception desk and, and announce, and they would announce over the loudspeaker that I had room for four um, passengers who wanted to go to Krakow. And on this day, on the, I think it was March 30th, um, they made the announcement and I turned around and within 10 seconds or so, I saw this family here. It was a mother, her mother-in-law, two daughters, girls, and a little dog. And I thought, wow, um, this, I found out that this was a three generations of females, grandmother, mother, two girls, and even the dog was a female. So um, I thought this is quite an experience to be with three generations of females. I took them in my car, and as I said, it was a three-hour um, drive to Krakow. And I want to share just one little story um, about synchronicity. The three times I've gone overseas to help 
the refugees and families as they're fleeing uh, war. Very strange um, events happened. I don't think you can call it coincidence. In this case, um, this family, I drove them and we got into Krakow in the evening, pretty late at night. And I was looking for a hotel um, that would accept dogs because the next day they were going to on a train to Dusseldorf in Germany. So I um, was calling my contacts on our group chat to see if they could tell me where there was a hotel that would accept a dog. And they directed me to the Sheraton Hotel in Krakow. So I took them there, went up to the room to help them get settled in. And they asked me if I could uh, find out what the, um, the train schedule from Krakow to Dusseldorf the next day. So I'm on my cell phone looking at the uh, train schedules and I was having a really hard time because everything was in Polish and I, I couldn't understand. And uh, by this time it was um, close to 11 o'clock at night. And I knew I had a three hour um, car ride back to my hotel. So I, I texted on my group chat and I said, is there anyone who can help me? So I have to go back to my hotel and take over and try to help this family. And within 30 seconds, a man named Greg from the United States, who was just had arrived in Krakow, texted me and said, I can help. So I texted back to him. I said, Greg, uh, where, where are you? Um, or no, he, he asked me, he said, where are you? And I said, uh, I'm at the Sheraton Hotel uh, in room 305 uh, in, in Krakow. And I could hear his jaw drop over the phone. And he said, that's amazing. He says, I'm staying at the Sheraton Hotel and my room is on the third floor. And uh, when I talk about synchronicity, it's like, uh, there must be something going on here. There must be some force or energy or something that this man who is going to help me um, with his family was just down, this, down the hallway. He could have been anywhere in the world uh, on this group chat. So I just mentioned that as an aside, because I think um, when you are helping other people, um, guardian angels or people just show up to help you um, at your time of need also. So I wanna show this first picture of this family that I transported and um, Emiko, if you could put that first one on there. So here we are uh, at, a, at a gas station on our way to Krakow. Uh, the woman in yellow is Irina, the mother. And the next woman is her mother-in-law, the grandmother, Ava. And on the right in the blue is um, Kira, the 13-year-old. And then the girl in the middle is Miroslava, uh, Miroslava, eight-year-old. And over in the right corner is uh, Farah, the dog. Little did I know at that moment when I was transporting them that someday they would be here in Sonoma County living in Roner Park. So I will talk about this family in just a few minutes. So um, every day I transported numerous families uh, from the border um, to, uh, to Krakow and other parts of Poland. Without exception, Every time we said goodbye at the, at the end of the destination, members of these families 
whom I did not know previously, would give me warm hugs with tears in their eyes, thanking me for coming from California to help them as they were fleeing the war in, in the terrible situations. Somewhere I read a, a quote that said, you can never have too many books or too many hugs. And that was true. Um, I really liked that quote. Um, and, and it kind of answers the question my wife was asking, you know, why are you compelled to go to Poland? Because, and I don't say this lightly or humorously, but you can't get hugs when you send a check or donate online. And I'm not putting down people who donate money and send checks and so on, because that's so critical to helping people in need. Um, but for me personally, I needed to go and, be, and, and, and meet these people who are suffering, who are in need face to face to show them that I care about them and that I want to help. And I, in other words, I want to make a human connection with the mothers and children at the moment that they were most vulnerable and in need of help. For me, that was important. Other people can write checks and, 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 um, and, and do other charitable kinds of activities and, and derive great satisfaction. But for me personally, I need to do more because there's a powerful, I can't really explain it, but there's a powerful connection made when you are giving these hugs to these people uh, during that moment that has the potential to change lives forever. It's, it's a spiritual, mystical, mysterious kind of uh, connection that is made. And when I say change lives, I don't mean just changing their lives, but changing my life. And I wanted the children, especially the children, to someday remember that an old Asian man from a city 6,000 miles away suddenly appeared out of nowhere and gave them a ride to their destination. And as they grow up, it may be a fuzzy, fuzzy memory, but I hope that it will influence them as they grow up to become kind and compassionate and help others in need. And if that happens, the money that I spent on the trip will be well worth it. So I have many, many experiences um, during my trip there in, in Ukraine and wonderful people that I met. Of course, I don't have the time to go through all that now, but I did write a blog almost daily while I was there. And I'm gonna ask uh, Emiko to put that in the chat. There's a link to my blog if you have time or you're interested in that experience, um, feel free to go in there and read, read the blog. So after two weeks of, of volunteering there, um, I came back to the United States thinking that uh, my job was done. I did my part in helping the Ukrainian families. 
And then I heard about uh, President Biden's um, program to bring 100,000 Ukrainians to the United States. It's called Uniting for Ukraine program. And I volunteered or I applied to be a sponsor. And you can sponsor a family or individuals from Ukraine to come here and live for up to two years. It's called humanitarian parole. And I, was, I became interested in doing that um, based on the experiences that I had in Poland and Ukraine. You had to identify a family, a specific family that you wanted to sponsor. And I immediately thought of Irina and this family of the three generations of women, of females. And um, fortunately I had kept their contact information from Facebook and I used Messenger and I texted and I said, would you like to come to the United States? And she immediately said, yes. And so we started the long process, took about two or three months of, um, and I, I was approved as a sponsor by the US government and they were approved to travel to the United States. The biggest challenge I had in the entire time of playing this was the dog. It wasn't the adults, but the dog was the main challenge because um, they were not allowed to enter the US by CDC because of uh, rabies uh, outbreaks and so on in Ukraine. So we had to get a special permit from CDC, which took about almost two months to get this permit. But anyway, we, we, did, we did manage to do that. But um, um, so, so they were approved to come to the United States and on August the 11th, uh, they arrived in the United States. And with a great um, deal of emotion, of gratefulness, of happiness to be here in the States, to be safe, but also mixed in was deep feelings of sadness, of leaving Irina's husband, who was the father to the two girls, the son to Ala, the grandmother. And I can't even imagine what it would, was like to say goodbye, not knowing if they'll ever see each other again. Uh, the father is in Chernihiv and he's in a civil defense force helping to protect their country. So they came and if Emiko, if you could put the second picture up there. As soon as we arrived at their home, they gave me this present, the shirt. Uh, you probably recognize the shirt from the one I showed earlier. So here they are in their new home in Roner Park. Shortly thereafter, we had a welcome picnic where we invited members of the community to come and welcome the family and for the family to thank all the people who had supported them. And you can put the third photo up there, please. Oh, Miko, can you put the, there you go. So here they are at the welcome picnic. So this family um, could not be here without the help of many, many people in the community who have donated money, who have donated a house at, at a very, very um, steep discount in their rent. 
uh, someone even gave a car to the family, uh, a um, auto repair store uh, shop in, in um, Sebastopol has offered free maintenance on the car. Uh, people donated furniture, food, clothes. Um, one of the things I learned from this experience is that there are so many good, kind, compassionate people in our community. And they are more than willing and eager to help in any way possible. So this family has adjusted well. The children are in school. They're learning English. My biggest challenge was teaching Irina how to drive. Uh, she had never driven before. Her husband had tried to teach her how to drive back in Ukraine, but he gave up. Uh, I guess he didn't know the um, old adage here in the States, husbands never try and teach your wife how to drive. Um, <laughs> but anyway, he gave up in frustration. So I've been teaching her how to drive almost daily going out there. And I can say that by this Friday, I'm expecting her to receive her driver's license, which will open up a tremendous amount of freedom and independence for this family because currently they are um, dependent on volunteers to drive them to school, to the market, etc. So in closing, I just wanted to say that um, as Sylvia has said, um, the person who gives oftentimes derives more benefits than the people receiving the, the aid and the assistance. Of course, that, that wasn't my motivation or even consciously thinking about that. Um, but somewhere subconsciously, you know that when you, when you give, when you help someone in need, that it does change your life forever for the good. So I'm just going to stop here, Sylvia. Um, like I said, I could, I'll be happy to answer questions, give more details, et cetera, um, at a later point. Oh, John, I'm just so blown away by yesterday. I was looking for a more elegant word, but it didn't come up. Um, and I, I, I was taking all kinds of notes of things I wanted to say, but I don't want, there's nothing I can add to that right now that I think would be as good as letting everybody sit and reflect a little bit about what you said. Um, everything about what, I, I am reflecting with a notebook open about, ask about this, mention about that. Um, I, I, <laughs> I did want to say, I noticed in that final picture of the family in Roanoke Park that the dog must have gotten her clearance to come. Yeah, if I can just quickly take a couple of minutes. Please, um, please, please. Yeah. So they have this small dog named Farah. They're very attached to Farah. And we had, as I mentioned, I had to get a special permit for her to come to the United States, which we did. And, um, we bought airline tickets for the family and they're going from Frankfurt, Germany to, um, to Ireland uh, to fly out of Ireland to San Francisco. And about two weeks before they were ready to come to the US, 
we found out that dogs were not allowed into Ireland because of some issue with rabies outbreaks and so on. We had already spent thousands of dollars on airline tickets to go through Ireland and we couldn't change the airline tickets. So what were we going to do about the dog? Um, and so at first I thought, well, I'll go to Frankfurt and get the dog and bring the dog back. And I thought, well, that was not very smart because uh, actually my wife is much better with animals and with dogs. So I asked her if she would be willing to fly to Frankfurt to pick up the dog, meet the family there and bring the dog back. And so she flew to Frankfurt, met the family and um, spent the day with them just to get become familiar with the dog, et cetera. Unfortunately, on the next day, as they were flying to Dublin, uh, they were held up by customs and airline personnel, so they missed their flight to Dublin. So they had to spend four nights in Frankfurt for the next flight back to the U.S. Those were the first flights available. So, um, which was a good thing because my wife got to know the dog far much better and uh, got to bond with the family. And then the family flew from Frankfurt to Dublin and from Dublin to the US, they missed their next flight because the customs in Dublin took a huge amount of time to process their paperwork. So they had to stay in Dublin another night. Then they tried to get on the flight the next day from Dublin to San Francisco. And just as they were ready to board the flight, United Airlines canceled their flight because of mechanical problems. So they just spent another night in Dublin. And finally, on the fourth try, they made it out of Dublin. Meanwhile, my wife was in Frankfurt with a dog. So she flew back on her own with a dog and actually was at the airport when they arrived with a dog. It was a very happy reunion. And I might be able to send Emiko a little clip of, of the reunion at the airport. But anyway, um, the, yes, the dog did make it finally um, here to the US and, and it's done very well. So do you want to show us a video of that? It'll take me a minute to find it, but uh, I'll it right near the end. All right. Sylvia, I'll have to look for the video, so I won't have it available right now. All right, dear. We, we will sit for uh, 12 minutes. How about that? 12 minutes. And keep your notebook out. I'd like you to write down some notes, like, how do I feel right now? What's my sense? Because the... All right, no, I'm not going to tell you why. You'll know why. You already know why you're listening and why why I chose to do this. And I want to and please write down how it is for you to have participated in the story of someone else's generosity of action. So please make some notes, and we'll talk later on. <laughs> you go retreat. Everybody says, close your eyes. And don't write anything the whole time. I'm telling you, close your eyes for a minute, reflect, ponder, and then write things down.
And when you're ready, open your eyes. And I was thinking I could have sat and just reflected and reflected and reflected. Um, one of the many feelings I have is um, I, I'm so buoyed up by um, anytime I hear about somebody who responds to a situation. Everything that John said was amazing and wonderful, but the 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 his response to Diane when she said, "Why do you have to go with your body?" You know, and uh, he said, "I couldn't not." You know, I always think about that. I couldn't not do it. It's such a wonderful thing to think about that people could have that feeling that it's difficult, it's hard. I know that you know this is this is this, but I couldn't not. I have to help. So I keep thinking, what if the whole world suddenly got it that everybody everybody on this globe even if they're currently not in a war-torn area or not in a flood or a famine or a pandemic every at, at any place who's in a anyone who's in any place that needs help that the, a, a, a part of them could say, a part of me could say, I'll help you if I could. That's a, such a, an amazing thing. You know, think if human beings can do amazing things. They can, they can architect cathedrals. They can build, figure out how to make a dome. They can figure out how to land a person on the moon. They can figure out, not even figure out, they can discover that they can, uh, really put down personal concern for my own self and just say I have to help. It's an amazing thing. So Ellie, I don't want to I don't want to talk too much. I'll let I, I'm inviting you now to talk as long as you want, as much as you want, about the organization that you are part of and how you got there and whatever. And everybody's got all their notes about how do they feel. How do they feel? Well keep the notebook open. <laughs> And when we're finished, we'll ponder again, and then we'll talk. But take your time. This is my friend, Ellie Dwight. Hi, everybody. Thank you, Sylvia. And thank you so much, John. It was so um, grounding and heart-opening to hear those stories. It's really great. Um, my story... Uh, for this chapter of my life actually began about 10 years ago when I was working at a independent day school in Sonoma County. And we were very fortunate to have a young speaker come to the school who gave a version of a TED talk that she had recently given. Her name is Shabana Basich Rasik. I Her last name's challenging. Uh, she grew up in Afghanistan. She grew up in Kabul. Uh, had a very, uh, she's 33 now, I believe, and she was about 23 when she came to the school. And she grew up under the Taliban and had very supportive parents who were 
committed to her having an education and she and her siblings went to secret school. She would dress as a boy and go to school with her sister. And when she was age 12, this was part of the talk that she gave at the school I was at. Um, the Taliban fell and it was um, her, her, her talk was electrifying. Uh, my students were um, just had really never thought about what it would be like to not have an opportunity to have an education. And I, um, and that was very much the case for young women at, in, in the Afghanistan that Shabana grew up in and through, uh, from there on, she got to go to better schools, not secret schools. And through a state department grant ended up spending the last part of her high school in, um, I think fairly rural Wisconsin. Um, she ended up there, um, becoming fluent in English. And from there, she went to Middlebury College in Vermont, where um, during her time there, she was awarded a Peace Prize that's given at Middlebury. And with that money, she co-founded a, um, while still an undergraduate, a, uh, a school that she called School of Leadership Afghanistan, SOLA. And uh, at Initially, it was more of an enrichment program for girls in Kabul, and it grew uh, so that by 2016, it, she founded the first girls boarding school in Afghanistan. So girls from very remote provinces um, could have an opportunity at a, a, for a real education. So Shabana came to the school, gave that talk, and I just said, I need to stay in touch with you. I want to track Sola. Um, it was so inspirational to me. She's a, a true educational visionary and clearly was somebody making things happen. She did come back to the school I was at um, two more times. And, uh, and one of the times, the last time she came, she was looking at a recent, um, some recent building that had gone on. Uh, creating a robotics lab for students and makerspace and that kind of thing. And she said, we're building our own campus, a permanent campus in Kabul. And this is so thrilling. And I want to be in touch about how you made this happen because I want that for, for Sola girls too. Um, fast forward to um, August, this August before last, and every all of us know the story of the the Taliban um, re-entering um, uh, Kabul and the city falling faster than anybody ever imagined. Um, there was a security company watching out for Sola, but they fled um, and the girls and teachers, um, all Afghan women, Afghan run, uh, were in an enormously dangerous and precarious position. Uh, Shabana got herself to the airport where she stayed for 72 hours um, on the phone constantly with every supporter, every contact she had ever made, um, trying to figure out how to safely evacuate the girls. Um, there are 101 girls. They um, did manage to evacuate. Uh, 
it's not my story to tell, but it was very dramatic getting them to the airport and getting them out of the country and along with Sola's staff with their their teachers and um, their families, but not the girls' families. The girls' families gave permission. Um, sorry, a heartbreaking permission, you know, if their girls were going to have lives of autonomy and independence, um, then that was their moment um, to leave. And they did. They got out on, uh, I believe it was three different flights to Qatar, where they were for several weeks in refugee camps and in um, other housing that had been arranged while Shabana um, uh, was on the phone to try and find a country that would take Sola. And there were a series of no's. And then um, the story, as I know it, is the through a contact, somebody called and went, even had the president of Rwanda on the phone. And um, before the request was even finished being made, he said, yes, we will we will take Sola. And um, so 250 people relocated um, to Kigali, Rwanda, and um, have been there ever since. Not, not the, the staff. The staff has slowly been repatriating to both Canada and the U.S., but the girls, the bulk of the girls are there. Some of the girls have left for... Um, boarding schools, but the, the bulk of the girls are right there in Kigali. So how this ties into my own life, um, I had my own personal things fall apart moment in my career um, about a year ago in December where I needed to leave the school I'd been a part at part of for 20 years. And I uh, was in kind of a free fall of what do I do with my life now? And um, Shabana had sent regular emails out to people who'd stayed connected with Sola. And I got one of those updates and I just had one of those moments um, where sometimes we're so lucky to get them if we're, if we're listening. I, um, I wrote her and I said, you know, my life is in a big unexpected transition and so is Sola. I want you to know I'm, I would be so happy to support Sola in any way possible. And she wrote back within minutes and said, yes, <laughs> let's talk. And um, before I knew it, I was on a plane to Kigali to go volunteer at Sola um, for close to seven weeks last spring. And um, I arrived and just said, I'm, you know, I'm a school administrator and a teacher and I'll do whatever you need, which was um, started with setting up a library for them. I'm not a librarian, but I, I did that. All those books people send to Africa, well, they were all there, it seemed like, and uh, organized a library, helped trans take a, a building that had been a residence and helped um, transition it into classrooms and um, had a remarkable time there during those seven weeks and um, was in 
am incredibly blessed to have been offered a, a position as their dean of faculty, where I now um, I now live in Rwanda. At this moment, I'm in Sonoma County. I leave tomorrow to go back. Um, I took a quick break to check in on my 90-year-old mom, and um, who, in part thanks to a third-year Zen practice, is doing very well. And um, I am working with Sola to hire teachers, uh, onboard the program, help build a school where um, girls will be graduating from um, and going on to live um, autonomous, empowered lives with the basic human right of, of education. Um, Sylvia's preamble about, about giving and um, it's so meaningful to me, so true. Um, I heard a quote um, the week, maybe last week, Sharon Salzberg said something like, generosity makes us whole. And then last night I heard um, a woman named Robin Wall Kimmer, Kimmerer um, was talking. She said, all flourishing is mutual. All flourishing is mutual. And that's been so true for me and my experience at Sola. People, people have said things to me like, oh, they're so lucky to have you. And to be very clear, I am so lucky to have them. Um, my life is just fed immeasurably by the these girls, their, um, their presence, their clarity, their curiosity, their joyfulness in the midst of sorrow, um, but how they connect with each other, um, how hungry they are to learn anything. Um, their, their great good humor, they're hilarious. Um, I did send Amiko a photo for security reasons. I can't, um, none of us photograph the girls ever um, from, from the front, but I did take a photo of them. Amiko, if you could um, show them. These are the Sola girls um, last spring on a, a gray day in Kigali. We were on the roof of one of the genocide museums there. And um, they are, they love having their photos taken as you can see. And um, there's also a photo of Shabana the week before last. She was with the Dalai Lama um, in uh, Dharamsala, and um, she's there holding her baby girl Sangha, uh, who she was pregnant with when she was at the airport for those um, 72 hours, and there's a board member for, of Sola behind her, um, and they had this amazing audience with the Dalai Lama. I just love this photo, and uh, Let's see, also in the chat, um, there will be uh, a, a link to the website if you would like to learn more. Um, on October 11th, it was the International Day of the Girl. And on the Sola campus, they entertained girls from Rwanda, from girls' schools, and um, had a wonderful uh, panel discussion and um, celebration of the day focusing on girl girls rising and um, and on that website 
in honor of the day of the girl, there is, there is a link to donate. Um, Sylvia wanted me to um, bring that up. So I, I will, it, the school is entirely funded by um, donations. And uh, I think that's the, the essence of what I have to say, except to just strongly concur with John about um, synchronicity and guardian angels. And um, there's just been so much of that, including connecting with Sylvia and her inviting me to come here um, for this. So thank you so much. It's an honor to be with all of you. Um, wow, wow, wow. <laughs> wow. Um... Uh, Ellie, <laughs> of course, I'm extremely happy that you were here on the morning with John. I was just about to say something ridiculous, like that's too much for one morning. But it's like hugs and books. You can't have too much of actually seeing goodness and kindness as an antidote to um, despair. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I had a bunch of things to say. I'm also writing notes. Uh, maybe we should sit for a few minutes and gather ourselves together. I don't know. Maybe we should just talk. Let's talk a little bit because now here we are. Uh, oh, uh, by the way, Ellie, when you just said generosity makes us whole, someone told me yesterday, and uh, Sharon said that, Sharon Salzberg said that. Yes. Angie, Angie Arian who died a few years ago was a friend of mine and a wonderful visionary thinking woman said action absorbs anxiety. And I just love that idea. Action absorbs anxiety. We can really be, you know, um, wringing our hands in despair or saying, how can I help? What can I do? What can I do? What do I, what, what do I need to do? John, did you find that, that video that you're going to show us? Wait, wait. We can't hear you, John. You have I'm to. Asking to unmute. Yep. There we go. Yes. Um, before I show that, Sylvia, I don't know if anyone else noticed uh, in the two presentations that it was all about women and girls. Uh, oh. About any men except men trying to teach wives how to drive, but. Um, and I think it's really significant because I'm in total awe of the strong, strong women that I met who fled their country and they did it taking everything that they owned, carrying in bags and suitcases to an unknown future. And I can't imagine how much courage and bravery and strength uh, it was for these mothers yeah. and grandmothers um, to take their children. Um, it's, it's incredible. And then when, when Ellie talks about these girls, um, they're, they're, you know, they're the future of their country. Um, it's, it's, I just want to share that Perspective. I, I, I love that because I will add my own synchronicity. I think it was October 11th that Ellie said is the day of the girl. October 11th. Where's Ellie? Yes. It's the day of the girl. 
October 11th, 1911 was my father's birthday. And I am the only child, the only daughter of my father, who uniquely among, uh, I think uniquely, uh, people said, um, um, people acknowledged that when I was young, boys were favorites in their family because they got further and achieved more. And I and would your father have preferred a, a boy? My father thought I was terrific. My father was so behind anything that I tried to do. I, I when I was accepted into a very prestigious girls' college, very happy to be accepted. They gave me a partial scholarship, but not a whole scholarship. And my father took a second job at night to pay for my tuition so that I could go to that school. So I am totally thrilled that the day of the girl is my father's birthday. So, um, okay, now we're back. Well, with yeah, so the, the video, um, I'll ask uh, Emiko to show. Just keep in mind, remember that it took them four times to get out of Europe to come to the U.S. And this was at San Francisco airport. And when we first saw them, and you'll see the dog, Farah, my wife is on the right here. Those of us who aren't already crying have now started to cry, as <sighs> I have. So, <laughs> somebody else could say something now. And uh, push your speak button if you are going to say anything. Cindy, you're crying, so why don't you push your thing button? So, push the talk button so you can say something. Have to push the talk. There you go. Oh, I'm just so grateful. Oh my God, I just feel deeply gratitude to these people doing this work. It's just, yeah. Thank you, thank you very much, and thank you for helping us to know that this is happening and that this is there are people doing this. It's just, just deep, deep gratitude. That's all I can say. Uh, <laughs> I think. Um, oh, that reminded. I, I first of all, I, I just have a, a strange memory in my mind, which I'll tell you in a minute. But in the meantime, think very much about pushing the button and responding to what did I think? How did I feel? What does this mean to me? Because it's important to me and. I'm sure to John and to Ellie to hear how did all this 
resound in everybody else. So push your I'd like to speak button, raise your hand. Actually, can I say one more thing? Yes. <laughs> um, I am part of something here at Ashland that we started years ago called the Ashland Food Project. And it's a thing where every two months, uh, neighborhoods, you get green bags and you fill them up for food for our food pantry for the for people that need food, which is increasing constantly. Yeah. And so it is really good because the reason they organized it was it's only every two months and they give you a bag and you go around and you put it, you, you gather as you, as the two months go by, you know, you put, when you go shopping, you add it to your bag and, and then you have neighborhood coordinators that go around and pick it up, which I am one of. And over the years, what ended up happening was people getting busy and pandemic and all of that. They wanted to donate checks instead of, and money instead of, doing the cans and stuff. Well, about two months ago, everybody figured out that's not was the intention of this. The intention of this was to have community, was to realize we are the same people that are putting in the bags that are the people getting the bags, that we're all part of the same thing and that we're all to be connected. And they said, we love that you want to be generous with your money, but it reminded me of John, what you were saying. But we would really rather that everybody sees each other, that you see your neighbor when you pick up the food, that you stay connected, that you make all of the neighbors connected. And it's just, it's the same thing as what John was talking about. It has to be, it makes a difference between just sending in money to do something, to actually feel it. And when we go to drop off the food at the food bank, it's always volunteers. And it's often the high school and elementary kids that are packing it all up and putting it into the, you know, thing. And it just, it makes the community feel tighter. It just makes it feel better. And I just wanted to add that too. Thank you again. <laughs> thank you. Thank you fabulously for adding that. And I'm making a little list here of words that start with CO, like co-sponsor, community, connecting, compassion, uh, Oh, good. Now there, there is Lisa Marie Eldridge. Hi. Okay. Um, well, um, this is the last thing I expected to walk into this morning <laughs> in this uh, meditation retreat. Um, I started out feeling deeply sad and um, maybe some anxiety and watched that ebb and flow with maybe some peacefulness, but with the, uh, the grief and sadness underneath it. And it took quite a while. In fact, it was just a second before I think Sylvia, you, someone said the word gratitude. I arrived there a flash before that was said. And I, I'm, I'm grateful that I came to it internally and didn't hear it first. Um, I've also brought to mind the community work that I'm doing and, and that the, at probably what is, has been the most difficult time in my life I have also blossomed as a community leader, 
and changing people's lives and bringing people together and working for the greater, encouraging people to work for the greater good. And it's so true that my experience is that at a time in my life when I expected I would be completely fallen apart and unable to do anything, I've in fact done more and felt better about myself than I ever have, all on account of the tremendous giving that I've felt I could not help but do. <laughs> I, I really, Lisa Marie, I'm so pleased that you said that because I, I, I really am so moved. I hesitated before. Well, I'll say this now, but really, I'm we're coming up to the Dan and Michael, and please, please, please figure out how you're going to join the conversation, because I really want to hear more voices, not just me. Um, my friend Malka Drucker, 20 years ago, co-wrote a book called Rescuers, uh, and it was an homage to the people in... 1939, 1940, uh, in Europe, who took in neighbors and hid them under their floorboards or in their attics and uh, all the many, many, many iterations of Anne Frank stories, people who took in people and uh, rescued them. And uh, Malka and her associate wrote a book called Rescuers and where there are essays of photos of these people now old by the time Malka wrote her book but uh, not young people anymore who had been who had successfully saved people or hidden people and uh, they were all the uh, one of the points that they make either uh, uh, specifically or allude to is in every case, the people were different. They weren't all clergy. They weren't all pillars of the church. They weren't all legislators. But uh, everybody answered a, a lot of questions about what, why, they, why. but the, the, they all had more or less the same answer to the question, why did you, at peril to your life and to your children's lives, take in people into your house? And the universal answer on at, when you saw it were iterations of, I couldn't not do it. Yeah. Couldn't not. And I got so interested. I say that I get tears in my eyes because I think, what does it take for us to say, I couldn't not? It should just be my child, then I couldn't not. But how many people's other, how many other people's children could I not, you know? And isn't that really the hope of my of my heart that I should have the kind of heart that should say I couldn't not I had to do it so thank you very much Michael Michael Gralnick I you know this this thought may seem a little off point to the the uplifting feeling, you know, thing that we're focusing on right now, but it's relevant to the bigger picture of, right. So the four noble truths and we accept life suffering and how it responds. We respond to it is where the freedom. And, you know, we, we all kind of know we've covered this 
And so we accept that in each of our lives, we have our journeys of suffering. We have a kid who's got an illness. We have a parent who's got this. We have a career change. We have each one of us has our own thing. But watching that family with their bags off, it occurs to me, would any of us going through our own suffering trade our problems for somebody else's on this journey of our own life? Or would we look at that and embrace our own problems and challenges? And, and I, for one, would not trade my problems for somebody else's journey of an immigrant or homelessness or the God knows or, or terminal illness or the God knows how many other things people face on their journey. So it's just a different way of looking at it. Yeah, suffering happens in each of our lives, but I'll stick with my suffering over somebody else's. I'm, I'm thinking that the, the, of a way to hear that, which might, I, I don't think you meant it that way, mean I've got enough of what I can deal with because I, I the feeling that I come away with is I'm dealing with my stuff, everybody's got stuff, but it's the awareness that everybody, just like me, wants to wants to their mind to be at ease, wants to be able to get up in the morning and know that they're safe and that their children are safe. We all fundamentally feel the same desires to thrive. And uh, it's actually the antidote to aversion in the mind that it seems to me that one way to think about the Four Noble Truths, I wrote them out this morning, actually, Michael, because I was interested in, but as you say, the the um, the usual way that we uh, look at the what the inside of the Buddha is that life comes with pain and difficulty, which you said everybody has their own version of it. And then the second one, life comes with pain and difficulty. The second noble truth is we make it worse by responding to it with um, aversion, with not being able to make room for it in our lives. In a, the most the most individual pain and suffering in our life calls from us, responds for our own to our own difficulties. I mean, obviously, you, you need to take care of yourself to be able to be there. To uh, and enough clarity to take care of other people, so that's given. But and, and but awareness that everybody in this world that we see is dealing with some level of discomfort. Instead of in in if I turn my mind from well, let me just take care of myself to what else could I take care of? Who else could I take care of? What could I? When we stop some when somebody. Uh, is uh, trying to get across the street with uh, uh, heavy suitcases. We say, can I help you with that? Or when somebody is not able to do this or that, the impulse in us is, I'll make it easier for you if I could. And it makes you feel good. I, I sometimes start um, a meditation period by asking people to think about something that you did in the last hour or two or all day today or yesterday that was helpful to other people. And people remember, you know, I, I gave my place in line to the person behind me because they were in a rush and I wasn't. Or I held the door for somebody as they were trying to get into a building. It, it You know, obviously that's not a big deal. 
but I think that my own mind gets a little bit assuaged in its own preoccupation with its own suffering. If I notice somebody else and I do something for them, their suffering, you know, holding a door or helping them across the street is a small thing compared to getting them out of a country. But if you can get them out of a country and you do, that's a big thing. Not all of us can do that, but we can all get excited about somebody else did that. And it's not a nothing thing. I, would, I was thinking that um, it's not rewriting the Four Noble Truths and say they're not true. It's that emphasizing in, in, uh, in daily life, if we are oriented to how can I help as an orientation, uh, there are so many more opportunities to feel better in our lives with our whole stories of my son is losing his job and my my daughter is not well and my mother is dying. In addition to that, people are kind. And, and reminding ourselves of that makes you feel good. I was thinking this morning of all strange things. Maybe somebody can remind me. There was an artist in the 50s who was very uh, a, a popular illustrator who would draw, and I can't remember his name. I remember he was a him, and that he would draw cartoons of like a person sitting crunched up in the back of a box and not peering out and saying, people are no damn good. Do you remember the name of that person? Do you remember that? I'm extremely old. I don't want to point out the other older people that I'm looking at, but any people remember who that was with the people are no damn good? Anyway. So I alone remember, but okay, Dan, you go. Okay, thank you. Um, like someone else said, what a surprise. I didn't expect this today, but Sylvia, you're always filled with surprises. John and Ellie, thank you so much. John, I saw you out at Spirit Rock once when you surprised us at a Wednesday morning with uh, Sylvia. And um, so I almost feel like I know you a little bit. I took down your email. Uh, I'm going to email you. I'm Dan Cooper. And uh, uh, and we'll talk further. Um, that was very inspiring. Thank you. I'm. You know, I, one can get pretty, pretty distraught if, if you think about the nuclear thing, the military industrial complex, what we can't do in Washington. But here you, right here in Sonoma, did something, did something big, you know, and, and, and you, you made a difference. And um, so there's a lot of stuff we can't do, but you just demonstrated there's a lot of stuff we can do. And uh, I'll be, we'll be in touch, and, um, and I want to see what I can do. So thank you. Thank you very, very much, Dan. And thank you very much, uh, Victoria. Was it Victoria? Victoria, where are you? Victoria, <laughs> I'm here. Victoria uh, reminds me that the answer to the question is William Steig. Do you remember William Steig? That <laughs> very, <laughs> very depressing kind of cartoonist, very, very uh, gifted cartoonist. But if you look it up, you'll see it was a very pessimistic view of peoplehood. <laughs> Thank you, Victoria. Mikhail, Mikai, Mikhail, Mikhail. Uh, hi, it's uh, just said Michael. Oh, <laughs> yes. 
Uh, nice to see you, uh, Sylvia and Sangha today. Um, I'm relatively new in joining with you all, but, um, and I have an 11 month old daughter who oftentimes joins with me. So I oftentimes keep myself off screen because she can be very distracting, um, but I try to tune in as much as I can. And I'm very grateful for the online offerings since I am a stay at home mom now. Um, so you asked to reflect on kind of what we were thinking about and feeling and what hearing today, this really spoke to a lot of things that I have been churning with within my practice and currently. Um, and a lot of that is around these changes in my life. A lot of my life for the last 30 years since I was a teenager has been really professionally and personally oriented around service. I've been a therapist in New Orleans for 25 years. I did Peace Corps, I've done a lot of things. And I suddenly got pregnant in my mid forties. And I moved from a very dangerous part of the country where I was engaged in community therapy uh, during a pandemic, during Katrina, all the stuff, right? And I am now in this very safe place in Maryland and I have a child and I am overwhelmed with how beautiful it feels to feel safe again. And wanting to, and very, very driven to wanting to give that back but it is not a season of my life to do that. And I really struggle with that. It is uh, something I have to, you know, return to a lot. And so I hear you all and I'm so I'm struck and I'm inspired. And I also have to go, this is not your season. This is not your season. My season is to sit with this little one. Um, and so that is a big piece because I think my, uh, Michael and someone else mentioned, you know, kind of dealing with that. That's my piece of compassion that I need to sit with. Um, and then I get to explore, you know, when I reach out to have a compassionate act that it is really coming from an intention of my heart and not my anxieties and fears around not feeling worthy, not feeling busy enough, many different things, um, which I think some of my service has come from. Um, but also one of the things that I just wanted to touch on in hearing you speak is it gave me an opportunity to just open up energetically and spaciously to all of the benefactors that have been part of my life, part of my family's life, part of my husband, who's Vietnamese, his life, now my daughter's life, that all, there are so many benefactors that I can name or envision, but that I can't even begin to understand that have affected all of us to be in this, all of us here. And that to me is really special um, too, is I may sit here and um, my service, I think sometimes is trying to care for myself and show up kindly at the grocery store um, or driving. <laughs> um, that um, So it just, I really appreciate it. Um, and I think I'm envious sometimes of wanting to do great acts right now of service. Um, so, uh, but it's just nice to be able to, I appreciate the sharing to give me the space to sit with that place that is somewhat a struggle for me right now. Um, so uh, thank you. It was wonderful to hear your stories. Thank you very, very much for all that you said, Michael. Your baby's not there right now is... Uh... She just, took, she just took a little nap. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it would have been fun to see, to see them if they got up. <laughs> I'll try to put her on camera every once in a while. <laughs> All right. Uh, that, but uh, 
thank you very, very much for everything that you said, because it, uh, I think it, it reiterates for all of us that what we're talking about is changing uh, in practice. The practice is, is uh, the practice, not the practice of going to here or there to do that or this specific thing, but the practice of keeping my heart open in kindness to all living beings, knowing that that being alive is a difficulty. Always there you are in Maryland, where it's strategically safe to be at this point. And uh, I'm so happy that in your mid 40s, you miraculously had a baby and he's well. Um, that that's your role. That's your manifestation in the, the each of us is called upon, I think, to manifest our best mind and then to do with it what we can reasonably do in our situation and or what you can most reasonably do. The best thing for you and your child and your husband is to take care of everybody with your heart and your mind and your presence at this point. Everybody does different things. Uh, I'll just add that it's this was pregnancy was not a sought pregnancy. It was a welcomed and gifted miracle but it was we my partner and I were our journey was one of service we were going to not have children and do other things <laughs> so this has really gone pulled me back and said no that is not so um it's, it's been interesting <laughs> I think uniformly you just did everybody here a big present of telling them that and uh reminding everybody that living is a tremendous, amazing miracle. And you just did it in the middle of a million other things that you could have done. You made a person who's in a, in a good situation for growing up into being a very good person. So really, wow. <laughs> Listen, uh, you could say something, Ellie, at any point. And John, at any point, we are all having a conversation. So feel free. Uh, John is talkable. Ellie would have to turn off her. Um, there you go. Make yourself talkable. Anybody feels like saying anything so far? From John and Ellie. <laughs> All right. Then we'll, then we'll ask Rivka who's back. So can you hear me? Yes. Okay. The last person, Michael, you really spoke to me. You kind of inspired me. And sometimes the universe speaks to you in different ways and sends you messages. But I'm a physician who, um, similarly, I worked on the West Side of Chicago, treating the poor for 30-something years. And then I started going to South America and doing medical missions down there. And my friend said to me, aren't there enough poor people who need your help on the South Side? Why do you have to go to South America? You know, aren't you doing enough? And I said, well, you know, there's like, hundreds of you know hundreds of people who work on the south side but only five of us went to bolivia which is the poorest country and i did several missions to bolivia and burma and other countries and as a surgeon we went there and it's the connection that as you talk about that human connection that is so special and one of the lines i remember one of my patients said to me you opened my head but you opened my heart now, that is like so profound. This was neurosurgery. The guy said to us postoperatively, you opened my head, but you also opened my heart. You know, and the people were so grateful. It was unbelievable. And then I also can't go anymore because I have an immune compromised disease. So I have to stay home now. And I can't do these missions that 
I was leaving the country once or twice a year. And then I realized what Sylvia was saying about, you know, just every day, what can we do every day? And I actually taught my kids when, you know, I would say, you have to open the door for the person behind you. Because I was so, I was so upset by even the nicest people in the world who slammed the grocery store door in your face. So by op- I said, I would stand there until they would hold the door for me. And I, what it taught them was, you get out of yourself and you pay attention to there's another person behind you. And so it's not just me, but I have to think about you. And the whole idea of what can I do every day to you know, improve the world? There's a Buddhist vow that says there are 7 billion people in the world that I say, and I, I vow to help all of them, but I say, but one at a time. So I think when you're feeling overwhelmed, you could say, yeah, there might be 7 billion problems, but maybe one at a time I can do something. This is the one I'm addressing. Thank you very much, Rivka. It's always wonderful to have you. Uh, and Rose, Rosie. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, first, Ellie and John, thank you so much for, you know, opening our hearts with your wonderful, wonderful story. And I just wanted to say I completely identify with that. I've been on the board of a food bank um, for over 30 years. And um, the food bank feeds literally thousands of people every year. And yet one of the, you know, so this is important work that it's doing, but uh, I make lunches every Tuesday um, and we work really hard to put this food that's donated from markets and things together for lunches for the homeless. And then we go and hand them bags. And um, yesterday morning, you know, I'm handing a bag right to someone and, you know, looking in their face and seeing them and, you know, connecting with them. And, you know, all my many years on the food bank are, are important, but I, I love this work. Um, of just being right with people and connecting. Um, That's so, thank you for sharing your stories of connection. And the other thing I wanted to say that um, in terms of feeling overwhelmed and bombarded with um, problems, world problems, community problems, um, you know, all the problems that serious problems, global warming and, Um, What I've started doing is when I watch the news or read the newspaper, it's always reporting problems, problem. It's not reporting people like you, John, or you, Ellie, you know, and what you're doing. But I try to look at what's being reported. And always I can find someone saying, no, this is not okay. (laughs) No. (laughs) And so there are these problems, but there are these also a rising up of, um, you know, compassion. So that's there. And, you know, we just, it's not in our faces much, but people are, are helping. People are doing things all over the world. And so that is, like Sylvia said, that's the antidote. And um, so I look for that and I always find it, you know, someone saying, 
you know, no, this is not okay. You cannot behave like this. And, you know, we need to do something about this. And so um, anyway, thank you, Sylvia, for uh, always turning our minds and hearts for what can be done or what's being done and, and or what we can do. So that's really that, you know, that the, the impulse to be involved and make a difference, I think is, is, is the impulse that that's the impulse to life that what can I do I'm to stay, to stay ab above despair. And, um, I'm going to listen to what we, we're all going to listen to what Victoria has to say. And then I'm going to ask you, we have, We'll have 10 minutes for everybody to say anything else that they want to say. Victoria. Thank you. Um, well, first of all, I also want to thank you, Sylvia, for bringing in these inspiring guests. And I want to thank both of them for their wonderful work. It's really, um, it's it's so heartening to know that people are out there doing good things. Um, I wanted to actually, I wasn't going to speak, but the, what, um, Michael said, I, I think it was um, about the, you know, doing this work in the world. And then now, right now is not the time having a child is that um, I, from the time I was a tiny child, I always wanted to go to Africa. We hosted a, an African doctor when I was a child um, who came over here to study, uh, do further studies in medicine. Then he went back to Nigeria and from the time I was little, I had this obsession with Africa and I still do, but um, my life has gone a different direction. And what I realized, for example, in raising a child is that's an immense responsibility. And um, it's, you know, one person can do so much to change the world. And so as if, if for those of us who are raising children or educating children for that matter, um, it, it's a sacred responsibility and it's, it's huge. I mean, I think it's, it, it's not considered glamorous in our society, but I think it's really, um, it's fundamental. And I, I always think when I'm, when I'm, you know, have these romantic ideas of going off to other countries and helping as um, mother Teresa, who got very frustrated with all these celebrities jumping on planes to go to India <laughs> to work with her when she became famous. And, you know, and she, you know, she said, grow where you are planted. And then she also said, not all of us can do great things but we can do small things with great love. And I love that quote because um, it's really true that even the tiniest gestures, you know, smiling at someone at the supermarket or just little, um, you know, the, from, from the tiniest gesture to the greatest work, it's if you do it with love, then it, then it can make a real difference in the world. So I just wanted to encourage the, those, I mean, because I, because I feel the same way that that it's there's something about you know going to other places in the world and trying to help people that um, is such a wonderful impulse. But for those of us who can't, I just wanted to encourage those that are you know doing small things with great love too. So thank you. I was just thinking as you were talking, Victoria, that when you smile at the person behind you in the supermarket who's also waiting and waiting, you make a difference, not only in the person behind you, but in the cashier who's having a hard time keeping up and in yourself. Because mm -hmm. when you smile, I frequently ask people, well, we'll, we'll give it to somebody bigger than me. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh 
when he gave instructions for meditation, would say all the regular things about let your body relax in such a way, feel the breath come in and out. Everybody, not everybody, many people giving calming and concentrating instructions will start with that. And then he said, smile. If you smile, then your body relaxes and you feel better. And really, it's a, it's a magical way of if you having your blood pressure taken in your medical exam at your medical person, and they're going to take the blood pressure, and you think to yourself, uh-oh, and then it goes up. If you smile at the person, and it goes down. Because really, smiling means I feel safe right now, and I'm smiling. That's the indication to another person that I am not acting out of aversion. The first line of the meta resolves. Uh, I it's it's an interesting story. When I learned the meta resolves, first of all, I learned them as may I be free of danger, may I have mental happiness, and I just said that for a lot of years. May I have physical happiness? May I have ease of well-being? I said just that way. And I thought, well, it's a pretty quaint way to say that, but, you know, may I be free of danger. But And it didn't bother me. Some people don't like saying danger. Some people didn't like this. May I feel safe is what it got changed to largely across the Western world, across people who are learning it as a practice technique. And then I find more recently that the original text is may I be free of enmity and danger. And it's much better that way because it has the whole answer in it that what what's actually dangerous for me is to allow enmity to take root in my mind and to start othering people that be mad at other people and this is my enemy and this is me and dividing the world into those people who are other than I because there's so many people in categories myriad categories that I could say well that's not me that's not me that's not me but if I actually believe that all beings are having the life that they're having because of all the history of where the history, because of the history of the whole world, each of us is uniquely us with our genes and our upbringing and our things that have happened to us, salubrious things, destructive things, everything that's happened, and that we couldn't really be other. We can learn and change. But at this moment, I am everything that I've ever learned on top of my genetics and on top of what's ever happened around me. And the response to that is never enmity. I think it's always compassion. It's always compassion that that some some uh, I am I rejoice for when I hear a story like John's or, or Ellie's or anybody else's that the karma of their life made them in the, to the kind of person that can say, uh, I can't do otherwise. Uh, I can't not respond to what's going on. This really not only calls to me, but I can do it. So I'm doing it. And, or uh, now is not the time, as Rivka was saying. The, but the it then becomes a specific way of manifesting in the world helpfully. And I'm saying it's a, it's a help to the world if I manifest happily. And if I manifest with a good heart and with kindness, and I don't 
project enmity around me. I was thinking, I often think about the fact that uh, radio stations uh, and television stations are all broadcasting around me, but I can't hear any of them because I don't have machinery plugged into them that is amplifying them in such a way that it's in a range that I know about it. But if I push this button or that button, suddenly KCBS will be here. Suddenly somebody else will be here. I think we're all broadcasting all the time. And we walk into rooms and are broadcasting just by coming in. We make a difference in a room when we enter it. We make a difference when we talk. Uh, and that the, the kind of guidelines for, for uh, uh, people who want to ally themselves with Dharma principles include uh, may I uh, uh, sometimes in the obverse uh, I dedicate myself to abstaining from speech that is harmful that speech that is exploitive or abusive and I, I'm thinking about the time when we might change that to I dedicate myself to manifesting speech that is helpful and uh, compassionate and kind. We can turn them around, not I won't do this stuff, but this is what I will do. I'll greet everybody with kindness. I'll greet everybody with uh, good wishes for them, either openly or either verbally, out loud, or in my heart. I undertake the precept to manifest in kindness, really, which somebody, I think, uh, was quoting the Bodhisattva vow, there are X many individuals in this world. I vow to uh, I, I vow to uh, end their suffering. Doesn't mean I'm going to go to the X million people, uh, individuals, or living forms in the world. It means I myself will meet the world with a kind heart. That's what it means, because a kind heart is invincible and it's untroubled. And because it doesn't fray up the the mind, you see clearly, it seems to me that the cause of the impulse to be kind is wisdom of, about this is what's going on in the world. And the, and the obverse, the backwards of that, being kind in the world is uh, soothing enough so that we can look around and say, this is how the world is. And I'm all right to be a part of it. And I'll meet it with kindness. Because that's good for me and everybody else. Dalai Lama, I'm sure you know someone has told you. That uh, he's uh, often said, my religion is kindness. I don't know that I could do better if I said another sentence after that. That's about the best sentence I know. <laughs> Does anybody have anything else that they want to say? I am so happy that you both came, Ellie and John. I want to make sure where is Emika? Oh, there's a baby. There's Michael's baby. Oh, if you're on the other page, turn around, turn your page around so you can. There she is. What's Michael's baby's name? Her name is Lynn Mimi Lee, and we call her Lynn Mimi or Lily. 
Well, we could all say, oh, hello, does she do bye-bye or hello? She or? does. She also kisses. Wow. Well, we could, that's a good way to end. Everybody is thanking John and thanking Ellie. <laughs> and we're doing bye-bye to Michael. There you go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.